Brian O'Donovan literally on the side of the road recording this podcast or T News. Unfortunately, I can't even be on the side of the road, so I'm in the back of the car. Murray is driving. I'd love to pull in, but we're under a bit of time pressure, Jackie. We're going somewhere very important. you got to keep going. The joys of being on the road when you're Washington correspondent with only a fortnight to go until the election. Yeah, we're heading off to a Donald Trump rally in a town called Gastonia, North Carolina, which is outside Charlotte, North Carolina, a key swing state. Donald Trump needs to win it. He's holding these big rallies. So we're off. I'll fill you in in the coming days how we got on. We're going to be meeting the Trump supporters. We're going to be seeing a Donald Trump rally up close. Joe Biden, of course, not having any big rallies, not having any big in-person gatherings. He is continuing with the virtual rallies, though, Jackie. Mm -hmm. And we had another last night another Irish Americans for Joe Biden virtual rally. Oh wait, oh no, not this again? Yes, they sang the song once again. Tis my old twenty-year-old one. Do you remember? Come this fall, one and all will be voting in November. You have a voice, make a choice for our country and our children. Clear the way to a better day. Has to vote for Biden. From RTE News, this is states of mind. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. It's hard to get any word in with this clown. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. In 47 months, I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck. Ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast with Brian O'Donovan in Washington and Jackie Fox in Dublin today. This is the most important election of my lifetime, my kids' lifetime. We might not know a winner immediately, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that anything went wrong. It means it can take a long time to count all the ballots. My fear is, as you indicate, that it's the democratic process itself, it's democracy itself that is weakening in the United States. And and I've said, and others have said, that my belief is, you know, democracy, American democracy itself is on the ballot on November 3rd. Sometimes we complain about waiting 10 minutes to vote here in Ireland, Brian, in the tea time rush. But hearing about the long waits in the United States, how people do it, I do not know. It's so time consuming. The tea time rush. I love that line that we always hear in America, in you in Irish uh, election coverage. The tea time rush and they're expecting a brisk turnout. Yeah, but what we're seeing here, Jackie, is unbelievable in the last week or two. These long lines of people outside polling stations in places like Virginia, Georgia, Florida, these states that are opening up with early voting. And we're seeing these huge long lines of people time-consuming, probably due to the changed political environment. We're seeing people coming out enthused, wanting to get their votes out. Also COVID-19 playing a big part, people wanting to get out early so that they don't have to get packed into a busy polling station on polling day. So just to recap, early voting has started in more than 20 states ahead of the November presidential election. Already turnout has far surpassed what has come before. This is going to be record-breaking. It really is. At the moment, we're at around 30 million ballots being passed early, either through in-person, early voting, 
or mail-in voting. Compare that figure to about 6 to 8 million at the same time in 2016. The millions and millions of ballots are being cast, but it isn't always easy for people. Yeah, as you were saying, people are voting early to avoid large crowds on election day due to the pandemic. But hours-long wait times reported at polling stations in Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, where you're headed to, Brian, Tennessee, Louisiana and Ohio, among other states. And I think what a lot of this highlights, Jackie, is evidence of barriers and challenges that have been put in front of US voters, that it's difficult for them to get out and vote. One of the most developed, wealthiest, advanced countries in the world and it can be difficult to cast a vote and can be time consuming and look at those people who were able to come out and queue all day what about if you weren't able to come out all day you might have had to work you might not have been able to go to the polling station you may have had a health issue in short if you are spending the day voting it's going to disproportionately affect minority communities. I saw that in Columbus, Ohio, the line stretched for a quarter of a mile during early voting recently. And what people may or may not know is that these long lines are sometimes political. Organisations argue that this is a form of voter suppression, turning people off from heading to those polls. Yeah, and you mentioned Columbus, Ohio, and that's an interesting example, and long lines there are not a surprise. Back in 2006, a Republican-controlled legislature passed a state law that limited the number of in-person early voting sites to just one per county. So what that means is that in rural counties, you see them getting the exact same number of early voting sites as a more populous region. So some of the more populous and urban areas in Ohio are more Democratic-leaning, whereas the more rural areas tend to be more Republican leaning. Therefore, voting has been made easier for Republicans, the Democrats, because you don't have these big long lines in the country that you were going to see in the city and the urban areas. Now, Ohio state officials have blamed these long lines on the first day of early voting, saying that it was down to high enthusiasm among the electorate. Yes, so you have to ask yourself the question, especially since we are so used to quickly voting here in Ireland, would you stand in line four hours and take the day off work to vote? That's not an easy question for many people to answer, especially if they are relying on their job or may not have the ability and means to travel to a polling station that is far away. And US presidential election turnout can be considered low for a Western democracy. 56% turnout in 2016. Compare that to Sweden, 87% in their 2018 general election. And here in Ireland, 65% in our general election in 2016. You went to an early voting polling station recently, Brian. What did people say to you? Yeah, Jackie, we went to a polling station in Arlington, Virginia. Early voting has been underway there since mid-September, and they have seen a record turnout. Now, it's an interesting building that they're using in Arlington, Virginia. It's actually a former bank, and it still looks like a bank. There's a big counter when you come in. And what was happening was there were election officials and poll workers at the door asking people, are you here to put in an early ballot? Are you here to vote? Are you here to check the register? And then they were directed to the correct person at the bank. So it was almost like a bank. They were like tellers sitting up here at this big counter, but instead they were directing people where to go with their votes. It was very busy. We didn't see any long lines, but there was a constant flow of people and all of those individual polling booths were pretty much full the entire time we were there. Now, we were in Arlington, Virginia. It's just outside Washington, D.C. It would be very Democrat. It would be very Joe Biden. 
And that was reflected in the voters we spoke to. All the people we spoke to were going to be voting for Joe Biden. There was no great surprise there, given the demographics of that particular area. What was interesting to hear were their reasons for coming out early to vote. A strong anti-Donald Trump sentiment, a strong fear that Donald Trump may not accept the election results, that he may call fraud. And the people we spoke to said it was so important to them to get out early and make sure their votes were counted. The current president is talking about not accepting the results, so we want to make sure that our vote counts. So we kind of like to deposit it right here and uh, have it happen outside of the Postal Service. With the current administration and everything that's been going on, we wanted to make sure our vote got counted early. What do you make of Donald Trump's talk of voter fraud and the mail-in ballots? Did that make you maybe more concerned about getting out early and getting the vote in? It did. I mean, we take everything he says with a grain of salt anyway, but it is sensationalizing everything. And we think that it will have a larger impact across the country. So we wanted to do our part to kind of mitigate that risk and really have our votes counted. This election, I think, is the most important election of my entire life. And I want to make sure that my vote is counted. And so that's why I came out early. The president says a lot that there's a problem with the mail-in ballots, with the absentee ballots. Is that something that weighs on your mind when you feel this need to in-person vote? Uh, everything Trump does weighs on my mind negatively. And so anything that he sees as a problem, I don't see as a problem. Would you normally be an early voter? Never. What's different this time around? Just, this is the most important election of my lifetime, my kids' lifetime. We just need to get that guy out of the office. Interested to hear from those people there, Brian. But there are other issues at play here too. It's not just long lines at polling stations. First, I think we need some historical context here. Remember, at the beginning of the United States, voting was restricted to wealthy white landowners. But that has been opened up to women and African-Americans over the decades. However, there were efforts to suppress these new rights. There were poll taxes, literacy tests and violence directed towards black people who attempted to vote. For example, I think we've lost you, Brian. Are you back? Brian. You're back, are you? Hi, Jackie. Yeah, you're back. I'm back. Perfect. Sorry about that, Jackie. We lost the line. I'm driving through an area. Well, or rather, my cameraman Murray is driving. I'm in the back seat. It's called Broadnax, Virginia. <laughs> And we're still about three hours out from Gastonia, North Carolina, which is our final destination. But you Broadnax are in is the, the I wish I wish I could describe Broadnax, Jackie, but I have <laughs> never seen so much fog. I can't see a thing. I don't know how Murray is surviving. Are you okay at the drive? He's waving. He's giving me the thumbs <laughs> up. Murray. He's happy. Hi, He's Murray. used to this. Murray's American. He's used to the severe fog of Virginia, but uh, I will keep you posted as we go. Unfortunately, perhaps the fog is paying, playing havoc with our uh, with our signal, so apologies there for the cutoff in the line. No worry. It's like a Halloween-themed states of mind with all the fog. Absolutely, yes. So, yes, uh, before you disappeared into the fog there, Brian, we were talking about examples of suppressing the vote decades ago. For example, this discrimination included impossible literacy tests given only to black people and poor white people. Like in Mississippi, it had what's called a soap bubble test, which required the test taker to correctly guess the number of bubbles in a bar of soap in order to vote. 
I mean, that's impossible. Yeah, Jackie, I mean, that's unbelievable. I couldn't believe that story when you told me about the soap. There were efforts to try to address these issues, though, and by the 1960s, after mass protests and voter registration efforts during the civil rights movement, there was federal intervention. In 1964, poll taxes were prohibited, and in the 1965 Voting Rights Act barred the remainder of the voter suppression tactics that had been used. And that Voting Rights Act was a landmark decision in 1965. It was enacted to ensure no citizen would be denied the right to vote because of race or colour. Yeah, and it meant that states had to get federal pre-clearance before making changes to their voting systems and infrastructure. And it was mostly for the southern states, those with histories of racially motivated voter suppression. However, a Supreme Court ruling in 2013 changed that. Basically, the Supreme Court decided it was no longer necessary to enforce it. Therefore, it allowed state officials and legislators to make their own changes to how voting is carried out in their state in elections, leaving little oversight by the federal government. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg described the decision at the time as throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Yeah, and it was strongly argued that this has actually weakened the voting process as a number of new voting rules and regulations have been implemented since. States would argue that these measures are designed to reduce election fraud, but others say, look, this is just another new form of voter suppression. So what we've seen is individuals and groups challenging state voting practices in the courts. Okay, so here are some other issues than the early voting we have just talked about. Pre-COVID, gerrymandering is also considered to be another form of voter suppression. That is dividing or arranging a territorial unit into election districts in a way that gives one political party an unfair advantage. What it can do is dilute the vote or it makes it hyper-concentrated so it dilutes it in other places basically. Yeah, so if you can imagine what you do here, you'd look at the mathematical formula to see where a certain cohort of people are, then you can create districts where you can either pack them all into one or two districts to weaken a vote in that area where there may have been loyalty to a particular party. That's gerrymandering, an issue pre-COVID. Now we're in the midst of COVID times. It has highlighted other problems. There is increased demand on voting by mail and early voting to avoid massive crowds at polling stations on November 3rd. Yeah, and like early voting, drop boxes are another issue during this election. These are the boxes where voters can submit their filled out ballot papers instead of posting them. And I've seen these drop boxes popping up around Washington in recent weeks. In Ohio and Texas, where if Joe Biden were to win, it would be good night and good luck for Donald Trump. Republicans have limited the number of drop boxes to just one per county. So what this means is that both rural and urban locations have the same number of drop boxes. Now, the Texas Republican governor, Greg Abbott, said this was done to guard against possible voter fraud. Voting rights groups and Democrats say, however, that this is just a form of voter suppression. Now, both states are dealing with litigation about this and the future of it is all up in the air as we record this podcast. But at the end of the day, people are still out voting and there is no clear answer as to how it will impact the final weeks and days of voting. Mail-in ballots is another area. Head back to our episode, by the way, You've Got Mail, if you want a primer on this. Uh, But these are some of the challenges mail-in voting is facing to add on from that podcast. Remember we were talking about 
ballot verification to reduce fraud and sometimes you have to not only sign the ballot yourself but you have to get a witness to also sign your ballot. Well some ballots have already been discarded because the witness signature has tripped up voters. In South Carolina, a red state that could be competitive for Joe Biden, a federal judge in September had removed the witness signature requirement and voters had begun to cast their ballots without that rule in place. But then the U.S. Supreme Court recently reinstated the measure as it granted a stay sought by Republicans in the state. But they didn't throw out the ballots already cast under the other measure. In Pennsylvania and some other states, it is required that voters use two envelopes when they send in their ballots, one for the ballot itself and the other is described as a secrecy envelope. So ballots which only have the first envelope called naked ballots are thrown out. They don't have the second envelope. Well, how dare you? How dare you? Uh, They don't have the second um, (laughs) envelope. And Democrats have challenged this in litigation. But the state Supreme Court kept the secrecy envelope requirement in place. And this has become such an issue, Brian, that celebrities have got behind uh, with it in an information campaign in a very odd video. I mean, there are ways of grabbing people's attention and there are ways of grabbing people's attention. Absolutely. And we're looking at people like Sarah Silverman, Josh Gad, Chris Rock, Mark Ruffalo in the nip. I'm naked. I'm like naked. There isn't a man behind me. These are my hands. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Ruffalo, um, put your clothes on. To be honest, I wish I could cover my hands with my boobs, but here we are. I'm here to talk to you about voting. Did you know that ballots could be naked? And if you don't do exactly what I tell you, your ballot could get thrown out. This is uh, my ballot. Just got it. First of all, when your ballot comes, you're supposed to read the instructions. Read and follow the instructions that come with your ballot. If they say to use a black pen, use a black pen. I know that's like literally the least sexy thing a completely naked person could say, but... In some states like Pennsylvania, there are two envelopes you have to stuff your ballot in, otherwise it's called a naked ballot. Naked ballots, and you don't want to have one of those. Number three, mail your ballot in as soon as you can. Don't sit on them. Get those things out ASAP. Like now. Please vote. Take your clothes off and vote. Vote, vote, vote. Everyone's voice matters in this election. Please vote. America needs you. I'm back. Is that any better? Oh, that's way better. It sounded like you were on the moon there okay. before our naked ballots oh, clips. Um, no, Broadnax, Virginia, I told you, <laughs> not the moon. <laughs> Okay, so where were we? Yes. Okay, so also on our You Got Mail podcast, we talked about the US Postal Service and the challenges that is facing. But what happens when all those ballots are delivered? There are very tight races in both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. The success of a candidate depends on whether voters' mail-in ballots arrive on time to be counted. The most recent cases in Pennsylvania, what happened was the local Democratic Party earlier this year sued for a sweep of changes to election procedures that would maximise the number of mail-in votes that could be counted. And Republicans, they opposed the lawsuit. Yeah, and there's been sort of developments on this just in the last few days. One of the big changes was an extension of the deadline for mail-in ballots that had initially required all ballots to arrive by the evening of Election Day. But the Supreme Court just a few days ago ruled that Pennsylvania is allowed to count ballots received up to three days after the election. This will mean 
thousands more votes will be counted in one of the most critical swing states in the election. And we have spoken about Pennsylvania before mm -hmm. and the importance of Pennsylvania before. Donald Trump won it by a tiny margin, just 44,000 votes, but it was a victory that was key to him securing the White House. And in another crucial swing state, Wisconsin, Democrats and other liberal groups also sued to obtain an extension to mail-in ballot deadlines. Democrats obtained a ruling that would mean ballots postmarked on November 3rd that arrive on November 9th would be valid. There are so many issues at play here, so let's go deeper with Kimberly Whaley, legal analyst and law professor. Kimberly, thanks for so much for joining us on States of Mind. Can we go into some more voter suppression methods with you? So far on the podcast, we've been talking about long lines when early voting, ballot drop boxes being limited to one per county in some states and naked ballots. Could you tell us about what else happens like voter purging? Well, federal law does actually require or authorize states to clean up the voter registration rolls. Um, but some people argue that it's done in a way that disproportionately disenfranchises people of color in particular. So uh, by, by imposing arbitrary limitations or arbitrary requirements for staying on the voter rolls, for example, there could be a requirement that, that your signature match on every government document. And so many of us, you know, after many years, might change our signature, shorten it, um, it, it might be sort of look very differently than it did 20 years ago. That could be a basis for disenfranchising someone, taking them off the voter rolls without their knowledge. So you kind of alluded to it there a bit, Kimberly. Does the election process highlight a racially divided electoral system? And if so, how? Well, divided, I'm not so sure, but it does have a, a disproportionate impact on people of color. And that is in part because of the history of voting in the United States when originally, uh, of course, the U.S. was founded on widespread enslavement of people of color. And at the time the Constitution was ratified, only uh, wealthy white males could actually vote. Uh, eventually, that tent was open to include formerly enslaved males, to include women, etc. Um, but states have authority in this country to pass their own election laws. And historically, those laws, under the guise of uh, facilitating electoral, you know, the election process, um, are often designed to essentially keep certain people from the ballot. So in Atlanta or Georgia this week, or we saw, or maybe it was last week, we saw 11-hour lines in certain voting precincts, primarily precincts of, with people uh, of color, who, um, whereas in, in predominantly white precincts, there's rarely, or they're relatively very short lines. Uh, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court nominee, was asked um, by Senator Cory Booker, have you ever waited even an hour to vote and she she said no. And Kimberly, voter ID, how does that cause a problem for people in the United States who are trying to vote? So voter ID is a classic, I think, example of what people call a tool of voter suppression. Uh, the, the argument is that, well, we need ID because it, we need to prevent fraud. And there have been these kinds of challenges that have come up before the courts uh, during COVID and there are routinely 
rejected because there is such little evidence of fraud. So the argument is, listen, you can't impose more stringent ID uh, laws because you are claiming that you want to avoid fraud when there's actually no evidence of fraud. But the ID laws are a way to keep certain voters from the polls. So, for example, in the state of Texas, a, uh, a ID from a University of Texas uh, student, so a college student who is enrolled in the state public university under Texas law cannot use that ID to vote. But someone who has a concealed carry gun permit in the state of Texas can use that permit to vote. So that's an example where some would say, listen, this is really a political maneuver to keep potentially more progressive uh, university students from the polls, make it harder for them to vote and make it easier for more conservative who tend to be pro Second Amendment gun owners, make it easier for them to go to the polls. So ID, frankly, is something that uh, amongst the list of other things that Congress, in my view, should basically address on a national level. The Constitution does allow Congress to pass laws relating to federal elections. And, and when that happens, the state's follow suit because it's just easier to have one rule for ID, for example. Also, I think Congress could step up and have automatic voter registration when people turn 16. That would vastly increase participation. Let's look at this current election that we're in right now. Donald Trump, Kimberly, repeatedly attacking mail-in voting and saying it'll be susceptible to fraud and it'll be rigged and there'll be a flood of fraudulent ballots and this is the only way the Democrats can win if they cheat. What is your assessment of those claims by him? Is there any well, grounding in those claims? And what's the damage that it could have on the electorate when you, when you hear a president constantly saying these things? No, there's no, there is no support, empirical support for those claims. And of course, there is election, you know, mistakes. Uh, it's a very complicated process. It's an expensive process. Congress hasn't sufficiently uh, given federal dollars to the states to, to pull these, these elections off, particularly in a pandemic. Um, and of course, five states and the U.S. military have voted almost exclusively by mail for years without widespread fraud. The problem is um, that, you know, T Donald Trump has not only scared certain voters from utilizing the mail-in process, including his own base. Uh, the expectation is that there could be more turnout on Election Day from his base in a context where we're seeing um, the COVID numbers go way up in the United States recently. Uh, but also, he his attacks on voting have basically sort of created an impression in the minds of Americans that somehow the election process itself is flawed. And this started, frankly, in 2016 with uh, Vladimir Putin's attack on, through sort of Facebook and other social media sites on the integrity of elections and, you know, what we're seeing from the White House is actually, you know, a, a, a win for Vladimir Putin because it does create this false belief that somehow there's widespread voter fraud in the United States. And there just isn't. I mean, voter fraud under federal law carries a five year prison sentence. It's not something people do because it's not worth doing. Now, Donald Trump will say, oh, there was this case in Pennsylvania where there was ballots in a dustbin with all my name on them, or there was a case here in this state where this thing happened. He is good at picking these individual rare cases, ramping them up and highlighting them as this evidence of a wider systemic problem. Is there a danger that when he does that, he does get into people's minds and people do start to mistrust the entire process? Well, exactly. That is the problem. And of course, you know, he did make a comment about, you know, ballots being thrown in a river, but then couldn't identify the river. I mean, unfortunately, with the, you know, tens of thousands of lies 
that the president has has made from the White House since he took office. Americans are just numb to it, and it's almost impossible to follow up with with sort of fact checking that that spreads online. And we have you know media outlets that that repeat these lies. So it's very difficult uh, to move against that. And and I, my fear is, as you indicate, that it's the democratic process itself. It's democracy itself that is weakening in the United States. And, and I've said, and others have said, that my belief is, you know, democracy, American democracy itself is on the ballot on November 3rd. I, I don't think we can sustain four more years of a Trump administration that's just trashing norms, trashing laws, attacking the integrity of American democracy itself. It's a weak uh, system historically across many parts of the of the globe and America is not immune from falling prey to some other form of government than we've enjoyed. We've been hearing a lot about poll watchers as well Kimberly President Trump urging supporters to enter polling places to check for what he called fraud. What will they be looking for and could this lead to tense showdowns um, over the next couple of weeks? Well, it could. We've seen in in recent days reports of, um, you know, people being bullied at the polls if they did not vote for Trump or um, even, you know, election officials in one case wearing a MAGA uh, gear to sort of uh, impress upon people how to vote. And there are given that we have a huge unregulated, largely gun culture in the United States and the president has been stoking sort of violence from his supporters, that kind of language from even before he was elected in 2016, there is a concern of, you know, sort of wannabe militias turning out um, on, you know, in response to the president suggesting that there needs to be, you know, monitoring of the polls. There have always been poll watchers here, and there are poll watchers on both sides of the political spectrum. In the early 1980s, a federal court issued an injunction against the Republican National uh, party because they had been basically uh, sending around misinformation and bullying people. That injunction's been lifted. So there is concern that we're going to see more and more of this. So far, the numbers have been extraordinary in terms of the turnout with early voting, and we haven't seen any violence yet. So I'm hopeful uh, that this will continue. I'm hopeful that this uh, this kind of outpouring so far of participation in the electoral process is just going to drown out uh, these shenanigans or these attempts to upend the process, which, you know, tragically are coming from the president of the United States himself. Do you think this election result will head the full way to the Supreme Court this year, do you think? I think it's unlikely. I mean, that's just a rare occurrence. A lot of things would, would have to align. But if there are narrow margins, narrow margins in one of the swing states, you know, Pennsylvania, for example, doesn't start counting ballots under state law um, until, you know, election day or thereafter. So there will be delays. If it looks like the margins in a state like Pennsylvania are slim, then that could lead to lawsuits, that could lead to delays. Th- that question question as to, you know, the propriety of the election could go to the United States Supreme Court, or we would have a contested election, we wouldn't have a clear slate of electors from a particular state, and that would go to the House of Representatives. There are a number of ways the election can go off the rails. There's no clear tiebreaker under the American Constitution if that were to happen. And so the best bet, really, uh, to survive this and to keep the integrity of American elections intact is to have such a such a 
avalanche of support for Joe Biden that it's just very difficult to meaningfully raise challenges to the process. If Donald Trump does raise a challenge, if he takes to the Supreme Court, there is, of course, huge focus on the fact that now there's this conservative majority. Judge Amy Coney Barrett will probably be confirmed by then. Can we trust the Supreme Court to remain independent, impartial and to judge this on the law and not on politics? I'm very concerned about that. I'll be honest. I mean, we just saw this week a 4-4 split uh, regarding a Pennsylvania court's decision to allow mail-in ballots to be counted after Election Day. So there's basically two two schools of thought on the U.S. Supreme Court. On the one hand, uh, there's the conservative justices who will say courts should stay out of the business of managing elections, even in the context of a pandemic, and leave it exclusively to state legislatures. And then there would be the more uh, progressive, including in this particular case, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, who will say, listen, it's a pandemic. The right to vote is more important than this technical question of who made the decision. And of course, with Coney Barrett on the court, the expectation would be even if Pennsylvania itself, that, that electoral process, were to come up before the court, uh, in the next, once she is, as you indicate, expected to be confirmed, it would be a 5-4 anti-voter strong majority. And it would put, ironically, the chief justice, who is, of course, a conservative justice, in the minority progressive camp for a very, very long time. Legal analyst and law professor Kimberly Whaley, thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I mean, just a reminder, Brian, you are in the car and I suppose this podcast is passing your three-hour, four-hour journey to North Carolina it's at actually, the moment. W- w- would you believe it's, a, it's actually a six-hour journey, it's a Jackie? Six and yes, hour. it is. Oh my God. It is. But sure, in America, they, they don't bat an island on a six-hour car journey. It's like going around the corner to the I shops for the I, Yeah, They're I not bothered. <laughs> I don't know how you were doing this podcast because like reading stuff uh, in the car that's something that would make me car sick I don't know how you're doing yeah I sometimes get like that as well but no I am uh, focused thankfully I'm using the laptop yes I think if I was looking down I would be maybe feeling car sick but no right now and as long as we're not making the listeners sick and they're all happy and it's going so far so good I think we've got a good episode so far we're going to talk a little bit more about now voter suppression people being disenfranchised and the kind of work that's going on the ground to combat against that okay let's get Rachel on the line Hey, Rachel, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Now, you should be able to hear my colleague, Brian O'Donovan, on the line. He's in the car. He's not the driver. Don't worry. He's en route to North Carolina. He's on the road at the moment. Aha. I'm on my way to a Trump rally, Rachel. So fun and games tonight in in North Carolina. Yeah. Well, I can hear you just fine. Let me actually just plug in my headphones so that it it improves the sound quality on my end. Give me just one second. Yeah, sure. No problem. All right. are, Are you able to hear me clearly? Yeah, that is a lot better so if you're all good to go uh rachel will kick yeah, off yeah i'm all set we're joined now by rachel homer from protect democracy a non-partisan ngo dedicated to fighting attacks from home and abroad on the u.s voting system i suppose first off rachel what are we seeing on the ground right now in this election what sort of problems are voters encountering what sort of issues are you dealing with on the ground Great. Well, thanks for having me today. And and that's a great question. Um, Certainly voters around the country are facing a a variety of problems this election. I mean, in in America, um, there's a long history of of voter suppression um, of of a variety of types, whether it's coming from private groups or states. Um, And so this cycle, there's sort of the, the normal risks of voter suppression. And some of those have been ramped up given the political climate. 
Um, and then there's also a, a threat of interference from the federal government this time, which is um, not something we've really encountered before. And so a lot of voting rights groups and activists are sort of working hard to, to try to counter that threat this cycle as well. And let's talk about that work you do, because you guys in particular have been involved in some of the litigation. We've had some big high profile court cases in different states trying to battle various issues that voters are facing. What sort of litigation has your organization been involved in? Absolutely. Uh, we certainly have been involved in a lot of a lot of litigation, although, again, there are many great voting rights groups um, doing really yeoman's work on this. Um, you know, so we've been involved in several suits around the country. As I mentioned before, some of them are against um, states and other private actors that have been sort of engaged in voter suppression, and, and some of them are against the federal government. Um, you know, we were involved, we still are involved in a lawsuit in uh, North Carolina that's focused on reenfranchising uh, formerly incarcerated citizens. Um, in a lot of states in this country, there are laws and rules about whether someone who's been convicted of a crime um, and then served their sentence, whether they can then vote again when they get out. Um, and so in North Carolina, we were involved in a successful lawsuit um, to restore voting rights to people who had been convicted of a crime, had been incarcerated, and are now released, have served their time and, and sort of restoring voting rights to them. Um, we're also involved in a, in a lawsuit in Wisconsin to sort of protect the rights of, of voters there and make sure that they're able to uh, vote and have their votes counted and in particular vote safely during the pandemic and make sure that they're able to, to safely vote by mail, safely vote in person um, and have their votes counted. We also have been involved in, in a variety of lawsuits and, and other advocacy efforts um, to, to prevent the federal government from trying to interfere with the election. Um, we currently have a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security um, for their efforts to send federal law enforcement to uh, occupy Portland, Oregon, um, to suppress the protests there. Um, and that, you know, when that started happening, obviously the election hadn't happened, so it, it wasn't sort of directly about voting. Um, but it is about how DHS can sort of use its power um, to, to take over a city and really um, suppress, you know, First Amendment protected activity there in, in the form of protests. So we have an ongoing lawsuit over that. And then we've also been involved in some uh, advocacy efforts uh, to help prevent the Department of Justice from interfering with the election. Um, we've put out various letters signed by thousands of signatories, including, you know, former DOJ employees. Um, to sort of pressure DOJ to, to not interfere with the election. Rachel, how are people feeling about voting in 2020? Are people feeling disenfranchised this year? We've seen really high turnout rates so far, um, both in terms of people doing early voting um, and people voting by mail. Um, so I think certainly people are aware that there is heightened tensions in this political environment and that there's a real risk of voter suppression. But at the same time, you know, voters are working hard to make sure that, that their voices get heard. Um, and all of the civil rights and voting rights organizations in the country have been really gearing up for months to make sure that, you know, the election happens in a, in a free and fair way and that everyone can vote. And I think voters have really heard that. I mean, they're really voters have been showing up to vote. And that's that's the best evidence that voters feel like they are really able to make their vote voices heard. This is going to be a long November. How do you see this playing out? Well, none of us can predict the future. True. Um, I, I think you are right that it will be a long November. Um, you know, one of the things that's really true about elections in America is that they are, they're really run at the local level. Um, and there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. But it means that 
it's really about, you know, hardworking local officials, county officials, you know, board of elections in particular states and counties. Um, they're responsible for administering the election. Um, and so what that means is, in some ways, it's sort of a fail safe. It means that it's hard for any one thing to really disrupt the election too much. Um, it, it also means that it can take a long time for, for votes to be counted and, and for the votes to get in. Um, you know, so we're we're really encouraging folks to to get used to the idea that we might not know a winner immediately, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that anything went wrong. It means it can take a long time to count all the ballots, um, and we just have to make sure that all the ballots are counted, that we get an accurate count, and that we um, we don't jump to any conclusions immediately. So we need to do a bit of hustling ourselves about states of mind because we've got so much going on at the moment with the election so close. You're not talking about a naked video states of mind Irish nobody wants naked to ballot. See, nobody. Nobody, nobody would want to see that. No. States of undress. I love it. <laughs> we are in vision though. Fully clothed I have to say. Uh, we crashed the 6-1 studios recently and we recorded some US explainer pieces to get you ready for election day or election weeks I should really say. So head over to the RTE News social media accounts including YouTube where we have three quick explainers up there for you. The Electoral College, swing states and postal voting to get you all ready for the next couple of weeks. And not a naked ballot in sight. Not a naked ballot in sight. Oh, and don't forget, God, I almost forgot. We have an email, statesofmind at rte.ie. Don't forget, you can get in contact with both of us via that if you have any questions in the run-up to election day. Jackie, when next we speak, I will have been to the Donald Trump rally. I will fill you in and I will also be discussing the last and final and probably Mm -hmm. most important presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden due to take place this week. Just to fill you in now, as I drive through Virginia, we are approaching the North Carolina state line and I am seeing sign after sign for Donald Trump. Interestingly, not a great surprise. We're in a rural area. That's the divide here in the US. The question is, can he get the voter out? Absolutely. And I promise I won't call you at 4 a.m. Irish time this time to do with the debate. I promise I won't. Maybe I will. Depends it's how fine for me. It it's, it's tougher for you. It's, it's fine for me. But yeah, that is a difficult <laughs> time difference for you. Chat to you then, Jackie. Chat to you then.